Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. So here we are, the Battle of Colenso, December 15th, 1899. Four Victoria Crosses were awarded in this clash, but it also led to defeat for the British, who stumbled repeatedly under the command of their beloved yet faulty Sir Redverse Buller. The Boers, although victorious, also began to appreciate the true firepower their opponents possessed. It's a battle that led to the death of a field marshal's son, Freddie Roberts. J.B. Atkins, a reporter for the Manchester Guardian, wrote about the battle and said, Never had there been such an extraordinary sight, an enemy so conspicuous on one side against an invisible enemy on the other. That, in a nutshell, was the reality. As we heard last week, Buller had no real maps of any worth and had changed his mind at the last moment, ignoring the advice of the locals. But he did exactly what the Boer general Louis Boerter thought he'd do. Buller had originally decided to skirt the town of Colenso and its long rolling hills in order to march his men more than 20 kilometres away to the north and then to cross Portgitas Drift, where the approach to Ladysmith was easier and the hills were further back from the Tugela River, which meant the Boers, holding the high ground, would be further away. However, Buller fretted about the distance between the drift and his reinforcements, not to mention the field hospital, which would then be a significant 40 kilometres away. Buller changed his mind. He'd rather cross the Tugela River, which was flowing strongly, in a more direct route, closer to his railway-supplied support, and that was through the town of Colenso. The British force was vast, at least in terms of African warfare. 19,000 men arraigned themselves against the Boers as they began the bombardment of Boer positions on the tops of the Kopis across the Tugela River starting on the 14th of December, which, by the way, just happens to be my birthday, 24 hours before hostilities really began. But the Boers were not on the top of the Kopis, and like their colleagues over a thousand kilometres away, they ogled the explosions as if viewing a malevolent fireworks display. They were at the bottom of the hills and hidden. Already at Machesfontein, so far away, but only a few days earlier, the Boers had figured out that the British artillery couldn't hit targets using a flat trajectory as well as they could lob their shells to the top of hills. Furthermore, the Boers' new strategy involved firing their rifles straight at an approaching line of soldiers rather than from the top of the hill. Think about it. You miss the first person if you're shooting horizontally, but you could hit someone else, or maybe two with one shot. The positions down low also worked in favour of the Boers because it meant the skittish Boer commandos could not retreat too quickly when the British attacked, which had been a problem throughout the campaign. Witness what the Free State commander had done at the Battle of Moda River, for example. Boerta had other problems too. He placed one of his Krupp field guns on the copy nearest the railway line, but after one of his men defected to the British, he was forced to move the field gun down the hill and the Krugersdorp commando off that ridge. Boerta was awake early before the sun rose on the 15th of December and peered at the lines of British as they began to move. He had been convinced that the British would remain near their railway and their ammunition supply and would attempt to cross the river in the vicinity of Colenso and wouldn't try a flanking manoeuvre and he was right. General Louis Boerta decided therefore to entrench along a 14-kilometre front from Tlangwani Hill to the slopes of Red Hill in a gamble that he'd read the mind of his adversary correctly. On the day of the battle, 15 December 1899, Boerta had 4,500 men and an artillery consisting of four guns and a pom-pom, versus the English, who had more than 20. And before the battle, 
Boerta had insisted on stringent security measures, which included camouflaging his defence works and gun emplacements. Trenches were skillfully sited in the tall grass along the flats, and the soil dug up was strewn around so as to leave no visible mound. The Boers also posted dummies and false gun barrels of corrugated iron from the hilltops pointing to the south, thus the British bombardment. Two-thirds of every commando had to man their defences at night, one-third during the day. No lights had to be seen at night, smoking was prohibited, and scouts were out on the plain day and night to watch and report on the enemy's movements. It was these scouts who had sometimes done away with Buller's reconnaissance units. Boerter's biggest problem was Hlangwani Hill. It was on the wrong side of the Tugela, on the British side, but its height and strategic location was crucial. We heard in the last podcast what had happened when Boerter's commandos suddenly decided just to withdraw from their position on Hlangwani on the 13th of December. We need to understand that if that hill was taken by the British, they would have been able to bombard the left flank of Boerter's line. So, on the 14th of December, lots were drawn and the Wackerström and Standerton commandos then occupied the hill, without the British being aware that the most strategic high point in the area had been without protection for almost two days. Boerter's plan was in some ways similar to that adopted by Kurs de la Rey at the Moda River. His men hide until the British advance across the river, then they would wait until the soldiers had fully crossed before opening fire from point-blank range. His artillery was hidden in the hills north of the river, and his men were lying in their trenches, which could not be seen. The British would be trapped with no line of retreat if they crossed the river in numbers. The Boers would wait like coiled mombas and open fire when thousands of the British would be in range. It would have been calamitous. Boerter had hoped to destroy Buller's army in that single action. It didn't quite work out completely as he wanted, as we'll see, but only because of the stupidity of Colonel Long, who did something courageous, albeit sublimely crude, and in doing so actually saved thousands more British while losing his own life. Boerter had thought out his plan. He was gifted as a leader, taking control of complex logistics and also able to think on his feet. While Sir Redverse Buller had no real plan, besides the initial attack option, and as we'll see, could not take control of large numbers of men and was plagued by indecision. At first he wanted to outflank Colenso, then he decided to attack on 17th December across Portita's Drift. Then he changed his mind again and decided on the direct route and set the time and the date, December 15th before dawn. An artillery bombardment on the 14th of December had produced no apparent results, leading some of Buller's officers to wonder if the position was even defended. They had not seen a Boer, a tribute to the skill of the Boers, who remained still as snakes. Buller decided on a three-pronged assault. On the left, Hart's brigade was sent to find a drift or shallow ford across the Tugela west of Colenso. Early on the morning of 15 December, Hart gave his men half an hour's parade ground drill, then led them in close column towards the bridal drift. It's South Africa in the summer. The dust hangs in the air. Flitting through the dust are insects of all kinds. Birds of all types sing. Just to add more difficulties for the British, though, the Tugela River was partially flooded, courtesy of rains higher upstream overnight. On the right, Lord Dundonald's mounted brigade would strike Hlangwani. In the centre, Hildyard's brigade would attack straight down the railway line, just as Boerter hoped. Of all the British, though, it was Hildyard who understood the Boer tactics best. Littleton's and Barton's brigades were held in reserve. 
So, on the left of the British line, Hart's Irish Brigade left camp at around 4.30am, advancing on the river soon after dawn. Far away, on the opposite hills, Louis Boerter was awoken. His men said that there were a lot of lights being observed moving in the British camp. He knew instinctively that this was the British assault. So Hart, his orders were for his brigade to cross by bridle drift. Accompanying Hart at the front of his brigade was a Zulu guide who indicated that the route was to the right into one of the large loops in the river. In fact, bridle drift was on a straight stretch of the together, well to the west or left as they marched. They were marching directly into one of the most indefensible positions an army can take, called a salient. Hart's staff remonstrated that bridle drift lay further west and that the loop was a death trap, but crucially, Hart chose to follow the guide's directions. It is clear that the guide was confused, and he indicated bunt drift, which was inside the loop, not bridle drift. It didn't help that the guide, believe it or not, spoke no English either, and none of the English there spoke Zulu. Small details like this lead to thousands of deaths. Furthermore, Hart was an officer, obsessed with delivering an attack in close order with fire controlled by volley. As with other British officers in the early stages of this war, he had no concept of the effect of massed magazine-fed rifle fire of the sort the Boers were about to unleash on his soldiers. As Hart led his brigade into the loop towards the river bank, the commanding officer of his leading battalion, the 1st Royal Dublin Fusiliers, ordered his men into open order. Hart overruled him and issued new orders, remain in close order. Boerta had ordered his men to hold their fire until the British tried to cross the river, but Hart's brigade, jammed into the loop of the river, was too good a target to miss. The Boers opened fire, and Hart's brigade suffered over 500 casualties before they could be extricated. Worse, by Hart believing in the close order formation or keeping his men in hand, as he would say, when they came under fire across the river, he still refused to let the tight formations open up, let alone finding cover immediately. He thought the old British way of rushing forward in a tight unit with bayonets would suit. So for the Boers, it was tantamount to shooting fish in a barrel. The battalions repeatedly tried to extend to the left and locate the bridle drift. On each occasion, Hart recalled them and sent them back into the loop. For the troops who knew that Hart was wrong, it must have been excruciating. The soldiers of Hart's four battalions now spread along the river bank in the loop, but they were unable to identify any fordable part of the river which they could cross to the Boer side. Various groups tried to swim across. Several soldiers actually drowned. Those who made the crossing found that once they were on the far side, there was nothing they could achieve and merely swam back. Others were killed. Some were taken prisoner. The attack on the left stalled under devastating fire, and in two hours, Hart's men suffered 532 casualties, or approximately half the entire British loss for that battle. Can you imagine the pure weight of death had the Boers succeeded in their brilliant plan to entice the British into a trap and then butcher them like antelope? Buller eventually called for a retreat from the loop. Many soldiers managed to crawl back out of the salient, but some were still caught as a small Boer party sealed it off under the flag of a military truce. But in the centre, things were also going awry after some initial success. Hildyard's brigade had been slow to start moving, and his foolhardy artillery commander, Colonel Long, was about to be immortalised as he rushed ahead, breaking the basic rules of engagement. Artillery behind men, now it was men behind artillery. 
Colonel Long had commanded the British artillery at the Battle of Omdurman in the Sudan and been commended for his aggression in moving the guns in advance of the infantry to fire with great effect, although Kitchener was concerned at Long's impetuosity. It was Long, for example, who dispatched the train to Chivoli on the 15th of November 1899, leading to the capture of Winston Churchill and 80 other British soldiers. Long's orders at the Battle of Colenso were to remain behind Barton's brigade and use his naval 12-pounders, which came under his command, for the long-range work in support of Hildyard's attack on Colenso, the town. But Long was short on patience. He was a student of theory and had read a German work on the use of artillery, which outlined how the Prussian artillery had been particularly effective in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, merely by pushing the guns as far ahead as possible, often in front of the infantry. Long was a keen advocate of advancing the guns, but the Franco-Prussian War was fought with single-shot weapons, not magazine-loaded, super-fast-firing modern rifles, which were now slung over each Boer's shoulder. Long resolved to move his two field batteries forward towards the river to enable them to fire more effectively on the Boer positions, without waiting for his brigade. Two of Long's subordinate officers objected to this risky move, but he didn't listen. Long sent forward two scouts who returned further to report no sign of the Boers, so he presumed it was safe. He ordered the 14th and 66th field batteries, with the naval 12-pounders, to move to a position close to the river. The two field batteries moved forward, overtaking Hildyard's brigade, and took up positions opposite a small defensive structure called Fort Wiley. Long formed his guns up into a parade ground formation. He stood and surveyed them with a loving eye and prepared to open fire. It was at that moment the Boers opened fire on him from the far side of the river. Along with the devastating rifle fire, a Boer one-pounder pom-pom and a second field gun also fired on the British gunners. Within minutes, most of the horses of the two batteries and two-thirds of the gunners were dead or wounded, including the battery commanders. Long himself was shot through the arm and liver, was urged to order the survivors to abandon the guns and escape. Long is reputed to have retorted, Abandoned be damned, we never abandon guns. Watching through his telescope, Buller shouted at his staff officers, See what those guns are doing. They seem to be much too close. After a while, one staff officer returned. They're all right. Buller wasn't convinced. Surely they must be under rifle fire, he said. They are a little, came the answer, but they seem quite comfortable, said the staff officer. So it's a bit much to concentrate the blame for the loss merely on the commander-in-chief. Everyone seemed to think they were in on some kind of picnic except for the British under direct fire. As the Boers fired on Long, only a single gun was dragged into position and fired back. It had only two gunners still standing, one of whom was immediately shot, and the other dropped and crawled back to cover. The few survivors lay in a donga behind the gun line with the injured Long, who was reported as crying out in delirium, Ah, oh, my gunners! My gunners are splendid! Look at them! as he bled to death in the African dust. Meanwhile, the naval 12-pounders, hauled by slow-moving oxen, were far in the rear of the horse-drawn Royal Field Artillery batteries. Two of the naval guns had just crossed the Donga when the Boers opened fire. All the oxen in these two teams were killed outright, leaving the sailors to manhandle their guns to safety with the remaining 12-pounders. Behind this carnage, 400 metres back, two other field batteries fired on the Boers in support, but the entrenched commander suffered no damage. Buller then moved forward himself, to see what was happening, and lay in a donga, which is a deep hole, less than a kilometre from where the Boers were firing. He began to issue orders, and then he stood up. 
The Boer sharpshooters seemed to sense who it was, and bullets began raising puffs of dust around him while their artillery ranged in. Then the inevitable happened. Buller was hit in the side by a shell fragment and crumpled for a second before straightening and said he'd lost his wind but felt better. In fact, he'd been severely bruised, but he hid this from his men. Later, and in what must only be a Victorian form of masochism, Buller was quoted as saying, I wickedly confess I liked it very much. He was speaking of the battle, not of the wound. But the point is made. However, his personal physician wasn't so lucky. Captain Hughes, who at that point was hit in his lungs by a Boer bullet and fell, blood frothing from his lips, to die shortly after. General Buller directed Captain Schofield to call for volunteers then to recover the stranded guns, and Queen Victoria's grandson, Major Prince Christian Victor, Captain Schofield himself, Captain Congreve, and a certain Lieutenant Frederick Roberts, Lord Roberts' son, Freddie, took up the invitation. In military terms, you call this a suicide mission. Freddie Roberts was desperate for recognition so that he could be accepted at the military training academy, the entrance exam for which he had failed by a record margin. He had disgraced himself and his father. He had to make amends. The four officers with five teams of horses and limbers galloped over the open ground to the guns under a storm of fire. Congreve tells the story of his friend, the poor Freddie Roberts, who was slapping his riding crop against his leg and laughing. All we could see was little tufts of dust all over the ground, a whistling noise where they hit. My first bullet went through my left sleeve and just made the point of my elbow bleed. Next, a clod on my arm, then my horse got one, then my right leg, then my horse another, and that settled the question. He plunged, and I fell about a hundred yards from the guns. Christian, Victor, Congreve, and then Freddie Roberts were all shot and wounded. Boer General Louis Boerter had seen what was happening to Longden's artillery, and had quickly moved extra men into the trench overlooking the Donga to ensure that the guns would be lost to the British. The suicide mission had ridden straight into a reinforced section of Boer Trench. The remaining three teams under Schofield and Nurse reached the guns, hitched up three and began to return to cover. A shell then hit one, turning the gun carriage over and bringing down the team. Only two guns reached safety of the twelve originally out front. A further attempt to retrieve Long's guns was made from the right by Captain Reed of the 7th Battery, but he was forced to abandon the venture after losing half his men and horses to Boer rifle fire. In the meantime and in the centre, Hildjit's men had managed to cross the mighty Tugela River in places, in scenes similar to the rush for the beach through water at D-Day in 1944. By 9am, the position of the British was that Hart's brigade was withdrawing from the river loop on the left. Hildjid's brigade had made progress in actually taking the town of Colenso and reaching the river. Long's guns were abandoned in the open position near Fort Wiley, but they were all out of ammunition, and with surviving crews in cover in a donga and out on the right, not much better. Finally, Dundonald's mounted brigade was clinging to the slopes of Flangwani, which was on the right, in the face of substantial Boer numbers. While this was going on, two entire infantry brigades, Hildyards and Bartons, were close enough to have rushed support forward to the guns, but with Buller focusing his attention on the battle on the left, he missed a trick. Soon after Long's guns were abandoned, the attack on the right began. Dundonald's men advanced on foot towards Langwani, and as we saw, had made some progress up the hill, but they were outnumbered. 
Buller still had not realised how important Llangwani Hill was to the Boer position, but his subordinate Dundonald had, and he called for reinforcements. However, Buller then dithered. While he did so, things had changed in the centre, where Hildyard's brigade began its advance into Colenso. It was clear this commander had a much better grasp of modern warfare than Hart or Buller. For example, his brigade advanced in open order, sometimes crawling and taking advantage of any available cover. Very modern. Finally, it reached the buildings in the town. From there, they were able to concentrate their own rifle fire back on the Boer trenches on the far side of the Tugela, causing the Boers to fall back to a second line of trenches. For a moment, these Boers were exposed to the British artillery, but the retreating men were incorrectly identified as British troops and they escaped without being shelled. This is the umpteenth time in Natal that the British were confused about who was who. Hildyard was now in a good position to take the town and threaten the Boers further north of the together, but he needed reinforcements and ammunition. Half of the British force was still unused, yet none came. It's hours into this battle of Colenso, and Buller still has a chance to take the high ground. It's 9.30. Despite the disaster on the left and the loss of Long's guns, the attacks on the right and the centre were poised for success. All they needed was men to be moved forward and then victory. Buller had eight infantry battalions in reserve. He had 19,000 men versus the Boers 4,500. It should have been a rout. This was the first time Buller had been in command of a battle where he had devised the plan, and from his viewpoint, everything was going wrong. An hour later, at 10.30am, he ordered Hildyard to retreat from Colenso. Finally, at 11 that morning, he ordered a general retreat. The guns were abandoned. Even the retreat was not well handled. Several parties of men never received the order to pull back and remained in place well into the afternoon. On the right, it proved to be very difficult to pull Lord Dundonald's men out of the hillside position. Their retreat was not complete until after two as well, and the cost, well, more casualties than the number registered in the original attack. The disproportionate casualties on the two sides demonstrate the ineptness of Buller's strategy and his inability to think quickly enough. Boer losses... 8 dead, 30 wounded. British losses, 145 dead, 762 wounded, 220 missing or prisoners, a total of 1,137 men. Buller was distraught. He sent a message to General White, the commander in Ladysmith, which was besieged, suggesting that White should surrender after destroying his equipment. White was shocked. At first he refused to believe the message was genuine, and when it was confirmed, he refused to even consider surrender. Buller also spread his gloom and messages to Britain. It was clear from his telegraphs that he did not think he could win. One to Lord Lansdowne is particularly notable. Cable, 15 December, 11pm. My failure today raises a serious question. Stop. I do not think I am now strong enough to relieve White. Stop. Colenso is a fortress. If not taken in a rush, could only be taken in a siege. Stop. I do not think either a boer or a gun were seen by us all day. My view is that I ought to let Ladysmith go. Lansdowne was stunned. When we step back from this frenzied battle, there are some points to make. For example, the boers were far from confident of victory. The garrison of Colenso had fled across the river and taken shelter. The Boers and Llangwani could be driven off the mountain if Buller had sent even one of his battalions to assist Dundonald. The assault on the left could be relaunched across the correct bridal drift. 
Only two of Hildyard's four battalions were in action, and the eight battalions of Barton's and Littleton's brigades were uncommitted. Less than half of Buller's infantry was in action. Yes, but that's the benefit of hindsight. Yet, it is some of Buller's own officers who were saying justice on the evening of 15th December, but he'd lost his nerve. It was also the assessment of the German general staff, by the way, in their subsequent review of the South African War. They had military observers at Colenso and said that Buller's army was not beaten, it was Buller himself who was defeated. So the sun set on this brutal day, and after dark the Boers crossed the Tugela River, captured the men left behind, and retrieved the ten abandoned guns. Following the Battle of Colenso, Buller took Dundonald's, Hildyard's and Barton's brigades back to Shibboleth, sending Littleton's and Hart's brigades further back to the huge ten town of Freer, from which they had left. A full-blown retreat. Buller then sent a message to Buta, asking for an armistice to enable the British casualties to be brought in, which Buta granted. At the same time, Lord Roberts had arrived in the Cape with Kitchener as his chief of staff to command the entire army in place of Buller, who was effectively fired. But the wounded bull, Sir Redverse, didn't go quietly. As a parting gift to his men who loved him so much, he would send them to an even more brutal battle in a short while called Spion Corp. So let's sum up. Lieutenant Frederick Roberts died of his wounds. His father, Lord Roberts, was overcome by grief at the loss of his only son. On Lord Roberts' arrival in South Africa, he came near to collapse as he heard an account of the battle. It was a cruel irony that both Frederick Roberts and Prince Christian Victor had been given appointments as officers on the staff to protect them from unnecessary danger in view of their status, one as Lord Roberts' only son and the other as Queen Victoria's favourite grandson. But now Freddie was dead, although he won a Victoria Cross for valour. And Prince Christian Victor survived the battle, but was to die of typhoid in South Africa a year later, while war still raged, causing his grandmother much grief and pain. For the British, though, a small propaganda coup, a 14-year-old bugler was shot twice and lost his bugle in the waters of the Together. His name was Bugler Dunn. He was invalided back to Britain and lionised by the press. Eventually, Queen Victoria presented him with a brand new bugle in a much publicised event that boosted British sentiment. Then, on the 16th December, General Liwibota sat back and wrote his report for Paul Kruger, the President of the Transvaal Republic. At three o'clock in the afternoon, the enemy, having been repulsed at all points, began to retreat along the entire length of the front under cover of their big naval guns, leaving behind on the battlefield their dead and many of their wounded. He wrote as a kind of understatement. Buta continues in his letter to Kruger. And here with... I think I have discharged what I consider to be my duty, namely to provide you with a reliable and true report of the Battle of Colenso, the battle in which it must again have been clear and obvious to the most blinded that the Lord of Hosts fought this battle for us. Back on the battlefield, the stretcher-bearers, or body-snatchers, as they were called, were hard at work burying the dead. One such body-snatcher was Mahatma Gandhi, the future Prime Minister of India. As we heard in Podcast 12 last week, he had made his way to the front to assist as a stretcher-bearer. In fact, he'd formed an entire unit of 300 stretcher-bearers. Well, it's here we must end for this week. Next week, I'll talk about the fallout from the battle, and we'll also discuss what was happening across the war front and some of the cities under siege. 
In the meantime, please don't forget to rate this podcast on iTunes, and you're quite welcome to send me a direct message on Twitter. That's at Des Latham. That's at D-E-S-L-A-T-H-A-M. At Des Latham. Goodbye. Tot ziens.